Good evening, everyone. I'm Meredith Hall, Program Manager for Sydney Ideas, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you here tonight. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respects to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. I'm actually standing in tonight for Professor Mark McKenna. Uh, Mark McKenna is the Professor of History who pulled this panel together. I'd really like to thank him for doing that. Mark managed to engage Andrew West as the host of this evening's event, and I'm very grateful for Andrew for coming in to host the event. Many of us know Andrew as the presenter of the Religion and Ethics Report on ABC Radio National. He's a long-time journalist and broadcaster and the author of many books, including Bob Carr, A Self-Made Man. Andrew also has a role at the University of Sydney. He's a graduate and in 2013, the alumni of the University of Sydney elected Andrew as a Fellow of Senate, the university's governing body. I'd just like to leave you with a few words from Mark. This evening is certainly the right time to revisit the dismissal, not only because of the 40th anniversary. At the same moment, we have an exquisitely timed royal visit by Prince Charles and the Duchess of Cornwall, Camilla Parker Bowles. And this morning, the first sparks of a renewed debate on the prospect of an Australian Republic. The legacy of the dismissal is still very much with us. Thanks. Thank you, Meredith. Thank you, Meredith. Thank you all for coming. It's a packed house, which is terrific. Um, when Whitlam was sacked, I was uh, preparing for my seventh birthday, so I cannot confect any memory whatsoever of the dismissal. As a six-year-old, I didn't have a particularly politicised household or family, so unlike some people who at the age of five insist that they were handing out uh, these are people usually seeking Labor Party pre-selection, insist that they were handing out leaflets for Gough at the age of five. I can't confect anything like that. Um, uh, what I can say, of course, is that in my professional life as a journalist who covered the Labor Party and as the former president of the Labor Club here at the University of Sydney, and as someone who for many years, a secretary of the Fabian Society, organised the Whitlam Lecture, I know that the prevailing feeling among a lot of Labor politicians in the wake of the Whitlam government was to, while paying due homage to the great man, was to determine they would never lead a government that was anything like Goff's. Um, that wasn't necessarily a disavowal of Goff's uh, values um, or his modernising tendencies, but I think many Labor politicians, Bob Carr being one, said that they didn't want they wanted more than what he called the razzle, dazzle and crash of the Whitlam government. Uh, so tonight we're going to speak with three very distinguished uh, experts who will look at the Whitlam years and the Whitlam dismissal from a particular perspective. Professor Anne Toomey, very distinguished professor of constitutional law here at the University of Sydney. Anne, you would have probably heard speak extensively on the constitutional issues and the implications of the Whitlam dismissal. Uh, my old friend, Professor James Curran, a historian here at the university, also with the US Studies Center. James recently uh, released his book um, on Whitlam's relationship with Richard Nixon, Unholy Fury, and our distinguished visiting professor, Dr. Hashan Kumarasaringham, who is uh, from the Institute of Commonwealth Studies at the University of London. He's here at the University of Sydney as an Endeavour Visiting Fellow. Uh, 
Um, I can tell you one uh, story about Whitlam, however, who also served on the University of Sydney's Senate after he was Prime Minister. And uh, a mutual friend, Rodney Cavalier, insists it was Whitlam's proudest appointment to serve on the University of Sydney Senate. He did once spend two hours at a Senate meeting dissecting and reconstructing the classics curriculum, um, <laughs> which only he could. That sort of thing would not happen at a Senate meeting today, I can assure you. But the Senate meet, the Senate had 36 fellows at the time, and they were all enraptured, at least for the first hour uh, of the two hours, while Goff reconstructed the classics curriculum. I'd like, however, to ask Professor Toomey to begin by talking to us about the constitutional implications of the dismissal that we mark today. So John Kerr, in exercising the reserve power to dismiss the Whitlam government in 1975, argued that he had to act swiftly and without warning, lest Whitlam contact the Queen to have the Governor-General dismissed first. Now, for this, he has been roundly criticised for a long time because he failed to warn Whitlam or give him any opportunity to address Kerr's concerns about the constitutional issues. So the question I want to address this evening is, was Kerr justified in his view that in a race to the palace, Whitlam might prevail, getting the Queen to dismiss Kerr before Kerr could act against Whitlam? Now, there's some evidence that Whitlam might well have advised the Queen to dismiss Kerr had he got wind of what was going on. Um, indeed, he probably should have got wind of what was going on, but um, Goff, in his magnificence, wasn't terribly keen on paying attention to all the various things happening around him. Uh, when Kerr did dismiss Whitlam, one of the first things apparently he said is either I need to contact the palace, that's Kerr's version, or Whitlam's version of have you contacted the palace? Um, certainly afterwards, at lunch, when he went back to the lodge and was eating his steak, apparently, according to Fred Daly, um, Goff said, you know, I'll sack Kerr. Um, Daly then pointing out, well, it was way too late to do that. Uh, and we do also know from both Sir William Heseltine and Sir Martin Charteris that Goff actually did get in touch with the palace as soon as morning came in London. We don't know exactly what he said, but it would appear that he had accepted that he had been validly dismissed because he introduced himself not as Prime Minister, but as the member for Werriwa, and therefore presumably did not advise the Queen that he was still Prime Minister and the Queen should sack the Governor-General, unlike some of the other stories I'm about to tell you. Um, but if Whitlam had taken that politically incendiary step of seeking the dismissal of the Governor-General in the midst of a constitutional crisis, would the Queen have acted immediately upon his advice? Evidence from other countries where Prime Ministers have sought the removal of the Governor-General, and you'd be surprised at how many there are, uh, suggests that this would not have happened immediately and there would have been considerable delay. The Queen has the right to seek an explanation from both the Prime Minister and the Governor-General and to advise and warn about the action. She also has a right to request legal advice from Crown Law Officers concerning the legality of such an action. While she will eventually accede to an unjust dismissal, if it is unjust, experience shows that it's likely to take somewhere between weeks and months to actually get to that point. 
In the meantime, the Governor-General can easily and instantly dismiss the Prime Minister. And once the Prime Minister is dismissed, then the Palace has consistently taken the view that the advice given previously by that Prime Minister no longer has effect because that person is no longer a responsible minister and cannot advise in that constitutional way. So, as briefly as I can, I'll give you a number of examples of where this has happened in other countries and how it's been treated by the Palace and the British Government. So I'm going to start early in the Queen's reign. Pakistan, 1953. The Governor-General of Pakistan dismisses the Prime Minister, uh, Mr Nazimuddin, from his office. And uh, he has no express power in the Constitution to do this. And there's um, a high degree of um, ambiguity about whether or not he could legally do so. Nazimuddin claims that he's still Prime Minister because the Governor-General had no power to sack him and then gets, tries to get in contact with the Queen to advise her to dismiss the Governor-General. How do you deal with such a crisis? Well, in those days, you cut the international phone lines, and that's what they did. So poor dismissed Prime Minister had a great deal of difficulty trying to get through to the palace. British government, meanwhile, was very well aware that this is what was happening and that that's what he was trying to advise. Now, of course, the British formally had no role whatsoever in advising the Queen about this because Pakistan was an independent country by then. This, of course, did not stop them and never has in relation to any of these occasions. Uh, so advice was still running thick and free from the British government to the Queen. But what's most interesting is a telegram that they sent to the British High Commission in Pakistan um, about the issue of um, a, a um, Prime Minister advising the dismissal of the Governor-General. Uh, and this is what they said, and it's important because it's referred back to in all the other correspondence later every time this happens in any other country. They said, if a Prime Minister in office were to ask the Queen to dismiss the Governor-General, Her Majesty, before acceding to such an unusual request, would presumably require to have full information of the circumstances which led to it. This was a course adopted in 1932 when de Valera, from Irish Free State, made a submission to the King advising His Majesty to terminate the appointment of the Governor-General of the Irish Free State. No doubt also the Queen would wish to have the Governor-General's own account, though we would assume that he would in such a case already have reported uh, to Her Majesty the action which, had, which he had taken and the reasons for it. If the request were pressed, it would in the last resort be necessary for the Queen to accept the advice of ministers but they could not expect her to agree to dismissal of her personal representative without complete information on every aspect of the matter. And that's the view the British have consistently taken since, and so has the Queen. Uh, in that particular occasion, they just took the view that the Prime Minister had been dismissed, therefore any advice from him was irrelevant and the Queen could do nothing. Next occasion this occurs, a slightly different one. This is Salon, 1962. Um, there's been a failed coup uh, the Prime Minister seeks the dismissal of the Governor-General, Sir Oliver Gunathilaka. Um, not that he had any proved involvement in the, in the failed coup, but just because they were concerned that maybe in the future other people proposing a coup would draw him in and use him in those circumstances. Uh, now, the trick here in this particular one, the Queen objected to putting pressure on Sir Oliver to resign, but her private secretary said that uh, Sir Oliver's, Oliver's formal term 
had actually expired two years earlier. He'd never been formally renewed in his term, and therefore you could simply replace him just by appointing a new person. So technically, no dismissal. You just appoint a new person. Now, those of you who are constitutional lawyers will know that technically every Governor-General doesn't really have a term. They serve at the pleasure of the Queen. But formally, they normally are nominated for a period, five years or the like, and if you don't formally renew, gives a great excuse for getting rid of the person just by saying, well, we'll appoint a new person. We never really dismissed you. You're just being sort of replaced in the normal course. Now, that is an, a precedent they used many times to get rid of governors general afterwards. Uh, I can give you some other examples, but we've run out of time. Okay. Moving on, 1962, Western Nigeria, massive crisis. You've got the Premier of Western Nigeria sacking Chief Akintola, who is the um, Premier. Akintola claims he wasn't validly dismissed. He's still Premier. Um, they didn't cut the phone lines this time. He did get in contact with the palace and say, I want you to sack the governor. Um, Queen advised again by the British government, despite the fact that technically they have no role in any of this, uh, and she said, they say, well, you know, he's already been sacked, so don't take his advice. However, this time, he goes to the courts. And the courts in the Supreme Court of Nigeria says, well, actually, um, he wasn't validly sacked, therefore he is still Premier. Now, by this time, there's been a state of emergency. Both the Premier and the Governor have been suspended from office, so the Queen does nothing. Um, and the court case is going on appeal to the Privy Council. So the Queen's in a dilemma. What happens if she acts on the advice of this person who now is said to validly be the Premier and then the Privy Council reverses it and says he's not validly the Premier? Anyway, we get to the point where the state of emergency is about to end. They need to do something. So they do a sneaky trick of getting the administrator to appoint, um, to allow the um, previous Akintola to be acting Premier for one purpose only, and that is to advise the removal of the governor. Um, but in such a term as not actually technically saying dismiss, but just saying um, appointing a new one. So they use the Gunatilica um, method, although in this case there hadn't actually been an expired term. They just sort of had to turn a blind eye to that one. So that's what they did, um, and then guess what the Privy Council held? Uh, they then held that Akintola had been validly dismissed to begin with, so he wasn't really the Premier. Um, then there's all sorts of shenanigans with him then um, enacting a constitutional amendment that retrospectively changes the constitution so that he wasn't validly removed. Uh, meantime, the fellow who had originally replaced him as Premier um, had got wind of the Privy Council appeal before the um, answer was publicly announced. And so he says, I'm the rightful Premier, and then he advises the Queen to dismiss the new governor and go back to the old governor. Um, you can imagine what the poor Queen thought of all of this. Um, her British advisers, again, who formally weren't allowed to advise her but nonetheless did, uh, suggested that um, masterly inactivity was the appropriate response. Uh, and that's what they did. And uh, therefore, they did nothing. And politically, it was all resolved internally. Uh, Grenada, 1974, um, the, Premier, the Prime Minister recommends to the Queen to dismiss the um, Governor-General, Dame Hilda Bino. Um, she then sought to resign, 
Uh, no word from Buckingham Palace as to whether she is dismissed on the first advice or able to resign on the second advice. Riots break out. Dame Hilda flees the country, so abandons her post uh, and is later granted permission to resign. So again, and one of the other problems with all this is this ambiguity between resignation and um, dismissal. Um, St Lucia, 1979, is another one of my favourites. Um, uh, there you had an um, attempt to dismiss the Governor-General simply for political purposes. Different party came in, wanted to get rid of him. Um, Queen at first says no, apparently. They have another go. Um, uh, cabinet advises her to dismiss. Uh, palace stuffs them around for several months. Eventually, the palace says yes. Then, curiously, after a change in factions in the government, the government says, actually, now we want to reverse it. Um, and the Queen said, no, I've already said he's going, so he's going. <laughs> um, uh, the next Governor-General was then dismissed from office after clashing with the incoming government. Um, and again, it took um, a while before the Queen agreed, but eventually she did, again after some months, um, and he was actually replaced by the first governor who'd been dismissed, so we had a nice little turnaround there. Uh, one of the best ones, however, was St Kitts. Um, uh, the Premier sought to remove the governor, Sir Proben Innes. There'd been a big fight about um, giving assent to bills that were in a form that the, a court had held was invalid. So the governor said, I'm upholding the rule of law by not giving assent because a court has said this is invalid. And the government said, no, you have to do what we say. Um, and if you don't, you get sacked. Um, again, British government, and legitimately involved this time because St Kitts wasn't um, an independent country, but the British government, um, the legal advisor said that he shouldn't be booted out uh, except on grounds of proved misconduct or the necessity to keep the constitutional machine working. But the constitutional machine have ended up not working. The thing that completely um, destroyed the um, British government policy, uh, in this case it wasn't masterly inactivity, it was hastening slowly. Uh, and the thing that destroyed that um, was when um, Sir Proben Innes, the governor under threat, uh, made a request of the British representative for an article that concerned the dismissal of the Whitlam government. Um, and so it was his request for an article about the dismissal of the Whitlam government that made the British government fear he was going to occur and resulted in his own dismissal. <laughs> All right, um, I'm running out of time. So the very last example is Tuvalu, and this is a really recent one. So we're talking 2013. Uh, and here, the government lost its majority in Parliament, sought to hold on to office um, by not summoning Parliament, so there couldn't be a vote of no confidence against it. Uh, the Governor-General got sick of this after a while and used a reserve power to summon Parliament, so Parliament could decide on a vote of no confidence. Uh, the Prime Minister objected to that, advised the Queen to dismiss the Governor-General. Unsurprisingly, the Queen does nothing very quickly. And um, uh, the Governor-General, not having been notified that he was sacked, decided he was still Governor-General, and then he dismissed the Prime Minister. Um, so in that, in that, this is the classic replication of a race to the palace Whitlam scenario. So you've got um, a Prime Minister advising the dismissal of the Governor-General and then the Governor-General dismissing the Prime Minister. What happens? Well, in this particular case, he appointed a new Prime Minister on the condition that Parliament be recalled. 
A vote of no confidence was held in the previous Prime Minister. A new Prime Minister was elected. In that case, you could elect your Prime Minister from the House. Um, and the Queen took the view it was all resolved and did nothing. Uh, so the Queen, in all these roles, um, all these cases, delay is her best friend, and she exercises delay liberally. So what would have happened back in 1975 had Mr Whitlam got on the phone early in the morning to the Queen and told her to dismiss the Governor-General? First, very unlikely anyone was going to wake the Queen up. Um, second, when the Queen was told, uh, she would have required it to be in writing. They would have had to actually physically send by plane, usually with a courier. This has previously happened. You usually need like a minister or someone to go with it. The physical notification of the advice to dismiss, that would have taken a couple of days. She would have asked Kerr for his response. She would have um, required legal advice. It would have taken weeks. In the meantime, it would have been resolved politically in Australia. That's the way the palace plays it. Um, and that's why Kerr was wrong in his assessment of the Queen and his justification for not advising Whitlam um, or giving any warning prior to the event. Thank you. We, uh, we have until 7.30, so we have plenty of time for discussion. Uh, after each presentation, I might just ask the uh, speaker a couple of, I think, pertinent questions. And Peter Hitchens, who's a British columnist, brother of the late Christopher Hitchens, once observed about the Queen that she was very reluctant to exercise any form of political power or influence. Uh, now, in his case, he was talking about refusing to give assent to British legislation that gave more power to Europe because he said it would be like a bee sting in the sense that it would be the thing that, you know, it, it would be the last act of any monarch. And that was one of the reasons why the Queen was so reluctant. In all the cases that you've outlined, but particularly in the case of, uh, of Gough, uh, would a vice-regal interference or approval have been the bee sting, as it were? Well, we, we know in the case of, of Gough and Kerr, it, it, it probably wasn't the beasting because it didn't bring about a republic. Um, we know, however, that it was very, very damaging for the Governor-General personally, who was constantly attacked and vilified for a very long time afterwards. In a way, I suspect that he didn't, didn't quite expect. Uh, what Kerr proposed was that, wit that Fraser should formally take constitutional responsibility for the Governor-General's actions. And in fact, that was one of the, the conditions upon which um, Fraser's appointment was made. But the interesting thing is that the people never accepted that. The people accepted Fraser as Prime Minister, mm. but never accepted Kerr again. Uh, so it was a beasting for Kerr, but not for the role of the Governor-General and the monarchy in Australia. Um, uh, having said that, it certainly did give a spark to a Republican movement in Australia, and there are many people of a particular age who, were, who had their political interests ignited by 1975 in a way that just hasn't happened. Um, you talk to the younger generation today and they know little and care little about politics in, in a you know, very odd sort of way. We need a, an event like 1975 to make people interested again 
in their constitutional and political system. And um, not that I'm encouraging anyone to dismiss <laughs> anyone, uh, but I am suggesting that, you know, in, in many ways it was actually quite a helpful thing in terms of making people aware of the role of the Governor-General and, and um, reserve powers and all those things. Uh, just one other comment in relation to what you said, though. Um, yes, it is true that the Queen is extremely reluctant to um, exercise formal powers by rejecting formal advice, but that is not to say that she isn't powerful and she doesn't actually do things behind the scenes. She's actually very powerful, but she exercises soft power, and she does that because all advice that comes to her, particularly from Australia and other realms, um, comes first as informal advice. Uh, it's only when the informal advice is approved that you get formal advice. Um, and while the Queen can quite happily say she never rejects formal advice, she kills it at the informal stage if she wants to. Yeah, I mean, we know that, for example, uh, in the 1980s when Bob Hawke and Brian Mulroney were pushing for economic sanctions against South Africa and the Queen was known to be very supportive of those sanctions. She was very anti-apartheid, but she couldn't declare that position publicly because it would have been in opposition to her prime minister. That was the sort of... But she made it very clear in the Commonwealth that she believed in the isolation of South Africa. I mean, that's a, a good example. But I, I'm just wondering, her very acute understanding that her power hinges, in effect, on not exercising power. It, it, it hinges upon not being publicly seen to exercise power, and, and that's the critical difference. Uh, behind the scenes, she does exercise power, but she relies very much on secrecy uh, to support that, and that's recently been supported by the British government in changing all the laws to FOI and all the rest of it. You cannot get any documents concerning the Queen and what she does now until after her death, at least five years after her death and 20 years after the date of the document concerned. Uh, we've seen the same thing in relation to the correspondence between Kerr and the Queen. Uh, so there's very, very high levels of secrecy that protects um, the Queen. And um, not that I should be doing self-advertising, but for anyone who wants to know, um, the Queen um, re requested or demanded, I'm not quite sure which word you'd use, but the deletion of a chapter from my book on the chameleon crown because it exposed the fact uh, that um, in relation to that formal, informal advice, when it came to the enactment of the Australia Acts, which mm. cut off our relationship with the United Kingdom from a formal constitutional point of view, uh, the Queen was not keen on them and had objected to them for a long time. She didn't want to be advised by state premiers. She thought they were all a bit, you know. <laughs> um, she'd met Joe Bidjolke Peterson and she, she I was going to say that was exhibit A, I would have thought. <laughs> um, well, her private secretary said she was concerned about getting outlandish advice. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, the, the relevant chapter that she wanted deleted um, said that what happened in the end was that Australia got fed up and um, the the head of Prime Minister and Cabinet got sent off to the Queen to say, here's our informal advice, ma'am, that says that you have to, you know, you should agree to this, and if you don't like it, it's still our formal advice. Now, that's the thing she found most objectionable in the whole book, because at that point, she backed down because she couldn't be seen to be objecting to the formal advice of um, six states and one Commonwealth, so seven governments. She couldn't reject the formal advice of it. But the thing is, nobody stands up to her and does that, um, normally, everybody capitulates when the Queen says she objects to something because it's seen to be, you know, um, ungentlemanlike to force the Queen to do something she doesn't want to do. And that's a really strong pressure 
um, amongst politicians right throughout the realms and in the United Kingdom. So she gets away with an awful lot. But what she doesn't want anyone to know is that in the end she will capitulate if you force her to. Um, but that was the chapter she wanted deleted. So anyone who wants to read a chapter that the Queen wanted deleted, um, <laughs> the book's The Chameleon Crown, published by Federation Press. It's an excellent read. Um, and Absolutely. I think it's, chapter 21 was the one she didn't like. I wish I could say the Queen had read something that I'd written, but... Uh, uh, and she paid for it too. We they, have. They, they paid royalties for it. I have, however, read James Curran's terrific book, um, Unholy Fury, which is about Whitlam and Nixon and their relationship. James is an associate professor of history at the university, also with the US Studies Centre. Please welcome James Curran. Thanks very much, Andrew. Uh, look, I won't begin my remarks with uh, reflections on the morning or indeed the afternoon. Uh, of November the 11th. And you're younger than me, so you can't even pretend yeah, to remember three. anything. <laughs> I was three. Um, nor will I begin with the blocking of supply uh, or the double dissolution election of May 1974. Nor will I even begin with the election of the Whitlam government in 1972. I do want to take you back to a very cold, grey morning in London in January of 1969 when one of Whitlam's predecessors, John Gordon, arrived in London for the Commonwealth Prime Minister's Conference and he was met at the airport by Alexander Downer, Australia's High Commissioner to Britain. His son is there now too. Now, Gordon had a pretty blunt message for Alexander Downer in the car on the way from Heathrow to the Savoy Hotel. And he said, look, uh, High Commissioner, I just want to let you know that in my view, given that uh, Britain is likely to enter the European economic community in the next few years, given that it's also withdrawn its military, or is about to withdraw its military from east of Suez, it's from Southeast Asia, Britain is basically becoming for Australians a foreign country. Now, Alexander Downer was completely aghast at this kind of expression, keeping in mind that Alexander Downer had been described by British officials around this time as violently anglophile, <laughs> violently. <laughs> and keep in mind that Alexander Downer had proposed, whilst as High Commissioner, to mm. purchase a piece of land in the South Australian countryside which could be used as the Queen's Australian residence, a kind of Balmoral of the bush. Uh, this was thrown out by Cabinet when they decided that Downer wanted the Australian taxpayer to fund it. Anyway. The point is, Downer said it was too early in the morning to have an argument with my Prime Minister, so I sat back in the car, I looked at Kensington Palace and Hyde Park and I said, this can never be a foreign country for me. Now, the point of all this is to say that what Whitlam did in the broader field of Anglo-Australian relations, because that, after all, is at the real core of these events in 1975, the relationship between Australia and the Crown, Whitlam pushed this idea of Britain as a foreign country to its logical conclusion. The journalist Alan Reid often said of John Gordon he knew how to exhort rather than to achieve. And he didn't really make any great achievements in the landmarks of Australian civic culture. Now Whitlam was not the most likely leader to push through a revolution in Australia's relations with Britain. He did after all come from the most anglicised section of the community. He'd been educated at Canberra Boys Grammar School, St Paul's College here at Sydney University. His father was the Commonwealth Crown Solicitor General. Just a few years before becoming 
uh, Prime Minister, he had seemingly without any, any embarrassment referred to Australia as a British state. But he knew that the changed circumstances that Australia faced in the late 60s and early 70s meant that Australia's old white British identity was an anachronism. And he pushed through a number of very significant changes. He had a fresh mind and a very powerful personality. Everything he did in this field pushed in one direction. That is, a new idea of citizenship based on Australian rather than British nationality. Right from the moment that he was elected, he said that he wanted to move away from this kind of father and son relationship, talking about Anglo-Australian relations, to a more normal bilateral relationship. He wanted the United Kingdom to be seen on the same level as Germany, Japan, Indonesia and the United States in the broader kind of field of Australia's foreign relations. He, so first of all, he wanted to uh, abolish the, the appeals from the Supreme Courts of the States to London's Privy Council. He, wanted, he changed the Royal Style and Titles Act right, so that the Queen became, for Australian purposes, the Queen of Australia. And when he did this, he said that he wanted to make the monarchy a closer and more relevant institution for Australians. He changed the national anthem after a long drawn out saga in trying to find a, a new national anthem. And believe me, I've seen the reams of doggerel that were sent in to the national anthem competition in 1973. So he changed that from God Save the Queen to Advance Australia Fair after an opinion poll. He also brought in, of course, a new Australian honours system. He was absolutely intent, he said, when he first came to office and told the British High Commissioner in Australia that he wanted to cut down on a lot of the monarchical paraphernalia in Australia. But he said he didn't want this to be seen as anti-British. He said to the British, you can't have Christmas Island to use as a BBC radio relay station because I don't want British propaganda on Australian soil, <laughs> for example. But what's very interesting about the way Whitlam does it is the, now here is the lawyer in Whitlam, and here in a way is also the classicist. When he made these changes, he said that, and I quote him directly, they are solely intended to put our relationship on a more mature and contemporary basis and to reflect the development of a more independent Australian identity in the world. Indeed, what the Australian government is seeking to achieve in its relations not only with Britain but with a number of other countries is to give formal recognition to what has already happened as the necessary foundation for a realistic, more independent, more mature foreign policy. I think the key phrase there is to give formal recognition to what had already happened. In other words, there was no need for Whitlam to present these changes as the realisation of a long-held radical national dream about delivering Australia from a Menzian permafrost, if you like. Okay. Uh, Whitlam was very careful at every stage not to kind of fuse these changes with some kind of Republican sentiment. Uh, he didn't bring up Eureka or the Bodyline series or the betrayal at Gallipoli or the fall of Singapore. He didn't have that kind of radical nationalist view of history, which we did see uh, with Prime Minister Paul Keating. He was about precedent. Um, he said that the change to the Queen of Australia came about from popular feeling. And keep in mind that in one of the most nationalist governments that Australia has seen, the Queen came on, or I think twice the Queen came to Australia during the Whitlam years. But his language, as I said, is very important. He said on another occasion, 
talking about these same constitutional changes. He said, I want to get rid of all these colonial relics and constitutional anachronisms. Now, what he was doing was bringing Australian civic culture up to date with the material realities that had taken place. The economic and defence nexus in this relationship with Britain had long since collapsed. So what Whitlam was doing was bringing Australia up to date and making sure that its civic culture, its symbols, its rights and rituals that defined itself as an independent sovereign nation were up to date with that reality. But he said, I emphasise, quote, that these matters represent no disruptive departure from the past. In the great tradition of British constitutional monarchy, we march still from precedent to precedent, albeit with a firmer, more self-confident, more pers purposeful tread than ever before. Even in writing to the uh, British Prime Minister after he'd been dismissed, he said to Harold Wilson, he said, uh, you at least will be able to judge the rather silly accusations that Australia was turning away from Britain or growing hostile to our British traditions. This is at the end of December 1975. We did strive, he said, for a more independent foreign policy, but our admiration for the best things in Britain never faltered. Now, I think the interesting question here is why, given all these changes that he made to Australia's uh, symbolic culture, why was a republic a bridge too far in this period. Whitlam, after all, was a classicist by training. He believed in a republic. He believed that Australia ultimately would reach that conclusion. But I think he also knew that the severing of ties to the monarchy at this point would have been too controversial, would have been too disruptive to the fabric of the political culture. The ultimate irony, of course, is that Whitlam was deposed by a constitutional relic that reached back to the divine right of kings. And even more, that he sought the personal intervention of the Queen to correct the errant ways of her Governor-General, the very type of offshore interference that he had worked so tirelessly to bring to an end. And when Whitlam was asked, what was it like to be a Prime Minister sacked by the Crown, he said, I'm the first since George III sacked Lord North. <laughs> In other words, his appeal was to the English parliamentarians of the Civil War and to distant liberty. There wasn't an appeal to the Eureka Stockade or so on. So I think it's questionable as to whether or not uh, the dismissal provided the kind of legitimate grievance that would fuel the Republican debate. Now keep in mind Malcolm Fraser when he came in after that thumping election win at the end of 75. And one of the first things he did do was reinstate God Save the Queen as the royal anthem when the royals were in town. But he kept Advance Australia Fair for when we won medals at the Olympics, although we didn't win any in Montreal, <laughs> 76. Um, he brought back imperial honours but kept them coexistent with the Australian honours system that Gough Whitlam had brought in. And I asked Fraser about this and he said he simply thought that people at the time put greater gravitas into getting an imperial honour than an Australian one. The Australian ones were initially mocked as the Ocker Award uh, when they first came in. And then you think of the lang language of Hawke. When Hawke, Hawke said, Republic, not in my lifetime. The story of Australia and Britain, as he said, is the story of peaceful and ungrudging disengagement. Right? That's hardly a heroic Republican history. And it takes until the early 1990s for the goal of an Australian Republic to be on the Labor platform. So I think that's an interesting question. I don't necessarily have the answer, but I would say, I would argue, 
that November the 11th, 1975, wasn't necessarily the great surge or fillip for Australian republicanism. Thanks very much. James, um, what do we know about the personal dynamic between Gough and the Queen? Because it was thought that he was, he thought highly of her personally, that he was influenced by his friendship with Harold Wilson, uh, the great modernising British Labour leader who was in love with the Queen. <laughs> mm. I mean, I'm just wondering, part of Whitlam's reluctance to push that Republican goal, mm. was, it, was it a personal relationship he had with the Queen? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question because in, in all the time I have spent in archives, I don't think I've ever seen a record of conversation between the Queen and Whitlam. Or mm. You have? Right. Well, you, you might be able to flesh this out a bit more. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I understand it was a good working relationship. I mean, I, I certainly don't think there was any kind of uh, Menzian affection, uh, if I can put it that way. Uh, Menzies, you might recall, before he saw Lyndon Johnson at the White House in 64, said to his ambassador, I don't know, Walla, why do I always get sweaty palms before I meet the president? And it doesn't happen with the Queen. Um, no, but look, certainly, I mean, it is remarkable, and, and Whitlam says these kinds of things both in Australia and Britain. I mean, he, he goes out of his way to profess his admiration for British traditions and ideals and customs. He says, no one still in public life has a greater affection for Britain than I do. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Anne might be able to fill in some more detail about, about the sort of dynamic between the two. Um, but there was an hilarious story that came out in 2003. My erstwhile colleague at the Herald, Tony Stevens, wrote about it, where I think in 1974, uh, Gough and Margaret and uh, the Queen were with Princess Margaret at the time, and they were all rolling drunk, and Gough right, presented yeah. her with a, uh, a sheepskin rug and attempted to sort of cloak her with it, you know, touching yeah. the royal personage. Um, a story that Whitlam never denied. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you were going to add to that. Queen what the Queen was prepared to give. 
Um, it wasn't Whitlam coming in, guns blazing, no, getting what he wanted. Right. It was, yeah. um, she is, I think, quite good at manipulating people and she did a really good job on Whitlam. Uh, very briefly, James, uh, I just want to move from today's talk to your book, Unholy mm. Fury. Um, what's the conclusive answer? Was the CIA involved in Whitlam's dismissal? It does involve Kerr because, yeah. you know, there is the story that Kerr had been told the CIA right. would withdraw its daily briefings yep. because it was concerned. I mean, you've explored it. What did you find? Well, what I did find was that there is certainly evidence to suggest that some kind of CIA activity was at the very least, you know, so I'm choosing my words carefully here, mm. was at the very least considered uh, and that... Um, concern, By whom? Well, well, by the CIA, um, <laughs> but, but what I'm saying is in a conversation just after the May 74 election when, of course, Cairns became Deputy Prime Minister, um, the American State Department, the National Security Council and the White House hit the roof. They didn't want him having access to uh, sensitive US intelligence. They didn't want him briefed about what was happening at the, joint, at the US intelligence facilities. Uh, and it's at this moment that officials in the State Department tell Henry Kissinger that there has been, quote, a useful effort going on under CIA leadership in Australia, but that we might have to hold back from this spooky fiddling because we might get caught. And uh, spooky fiddling is the exact, is the exact term that is used. Um, Yes, and I mean, look, the, the evidence does suggest... Look, there's no documented evidence to suggest that the CIA were involved in the, in the mm. dismissal of the Whitlam government. I mean, I, I, uh, I know that, that, um, that Pil John Pilger has been doing archaeological surveys of the grounds around Old Parliament House <laughs> looking for <laughs> skeletons of CIA agents. Um, but but certainly, certainly the events prior, just prior to the dismissal when Whitlam was threatening on the day of the dismissal to go into Parliament and reveal the name of a CIA employee, that this had the Defence Department Secretary Arthur Tang livid, uh, that he thought this would be the end of the Australia-US intelligence and security relationship, and there was all sorts of action going on behind the scenes. CIA was sending uh, very, very hostile cables to Canberra saying, is this a change in the relationship? Um, but as yet, no. There's no smoking gun to suggest that they were involved in the dismissal. All right, before we take questions, our last and very distinguished guest is Dr. Hassan Kumarasar... You'll help me out. It's Kumarasingham. who is a senior research fellow at the Institute of Commonwealth Studies at the University of London. Uh, Hassan is also a lecturer in comparative politics at Ludwig Maximilians University in Munich. And he was also a General Schmutz Fellow in Commonwealth Studies at Cambridge. And from October this year, he's investigating the post-war Australian crown, as it were, as a visiting fellow in the Department of History here. So please welcome Hassan. Thank you very much. Uh, well, I know this is a very difficult time uh, and commemoration in Australian history, so I will refrain as a New Zealander from reminding you what happened <laughs> 10 days ago. <laughs> well, to extend from what James was saying, the Whitlam government brought about several major constitutional, political, and uh, cultural changes which affected uh, the relationship with uh, Britain. So James concentrated on what the 
in uh, many ways what, what Whitlam was thinking, and I will try and look at what, instead, what the British were thinking from their side. So as, as was, has been mentioned, there was a new national anthem, a new honour system, maybe another new one if uh, Turnbull and co have a chance, abolishing appeals uh, from the High Court to the Privy Council, and a, an attempt to change the uh, oath of citizenship, which removed the, any reference to the Queen, and as has been mentioned, if you like, Australianising uh, the Crown by making the Queen solely Queen of Australia without any mention uh, of the United Kingdom. So that happened in 1973, and as was mentioned, the Queen came uh, to Australia, and there was a, Whitlam gave a party for her uh, at the lodge, and the Queen met uh, Tom Burns, the then mm. president of the Federal Labour Party, and when he met the Queen, he said, they tell me, love, you've been naturalised. <laughs> so the relationship with Britain, so Britain was, of course, not any other country looking what was happening in um, Australia. This was a key relationship even in the mid-70s uh, for Australia, and Whitlam himself, though wanting to modernise it, still saw it as, as such. And it's actually in James's chapter, actually, on the High Commissioner's it's interesting to note that um, when, when, after Downer had come to his end of his long term as High Commissioner, Whitlam was keen to bring someone who brought a bit more realism uh, to, the, to the office of High Commissioner at Australia House. And one of the main choices, someone who advocated uh, that he should get the position himself, was none other than Rupert Murdoch. Uh, so it's, it's quite, a, quite interesting to speculate what uh, history would be like if he had been High Commissioner <laughs> during the dismissal. But turning to Australia House in uh, London, uh, when, when this, is, of course, was a position that was run, unlike all the other diplomatic positions, from, from the Prime Minister's office, so unlike the rest were in, in DFAT. And this, at that time, uh, the Australia House employed four times more staff than in Washington and ten times more staff than in Tokyo. So a huge uh, position... Uh, there. And turning to the dismissal itself, this in the fevered atmosphere that, and that naturally clung to the events of 1975, and in some ways which Anne has done so much to examine, brought, broke the cardinal principle of involving the crown into, well, the supposed cardinal principle of bringing the crown into conflict and into the political fray. And this was something that was inc incredibly important and meant that uh, the Crown, whether the, whether the British liked it or not, were involved, which meant the High Commission, the British High Commission in Canberra, took a, took a hugely uh, magnified uh, examination of what was happening in Canberra <coughs> because of the potential ramifications. This was not just an Australian crisis in this, in this, with this view. It was also looking at other parts of the Commonwealth, not only thinking of uh, republicanism, but also in terms of uh, changing the prerogatives that the Crown has in, in Britain as well as other parts of the Commonwealth. Uh, so this was a huge event in that, in that sense. And also, of course, Britain had still had residual but key constitutional uh, positions in the Australian states. Because until, of course, as you know, until 1986, uh, Britain had a formal constitutional relationship which each of the states, because of course, uh, the states of Australia predate the Commonwealth of Australia, 
which meant, interestingly, that when actions such as the appointment of governor uh, in, in, in the state happens, it was not done on the advice of the Premier formally, or by even by Canberra, or the Governor-General of Australia, but formally done by the British Foreign Secretary. So when the, when, the, when the time came in 1975, during the dismissal time, around that time, this became an important element of what Anne has described as a quasi-colonial relationship, which people like Lord Helsham, who was the Lord Chancellor in Britain in the early part of the Whitlam uh, administration, believed that Britain formally and politically and constitutionally was the trustee of the Australian federal system. So this is as late as 1973 saying this. And interestingly, Whitlam himself believed that the residual colonial status, at least as he admitted to Edward Heath, was good since it meant that the states were not fully sovereign, obviously a view that the states themselves uh, would disagree with. But the relationship was nonetheless um, changing, and there was these, these, if you like, all these many residual powers and anachronisms which uh, have been touched on before. And to Charles Johnson, who was the High Commissioner, the British High Commissioner in Canberra in 1967, believed that, that in, the, in the late 1960s, the Queen, to many Australians, was not so much Queen of Australia or even Queen of Britain, but the Queen of the British. Interestingly, he thought that Australians had a, a special relationship with what he described as with their magis, which apparently he had heard uh, across uh, when listening to Australians when the Queen visited. So Joe Garner, who was the permanent undersecretary at the Commonwealth Relations Office, when describing the, uh, when answering some of the queries that Johnson put about these strange artifacts, if you like, of the constitutional and political relationship with Australia said, that perhaps it was better to let sleeping anomalies lie. But those sleeping anomalies became very active uh, later on. But of course, it wasn't just these cultural, if you like, some ways cringeworthy events uh, or relationships with Britain, but it also was a, a, it was a critical political counterpoise for the states. The Crown was a crucial element in keeping their prerogatives vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the Commonwealth of Australia in Canberra. So there are many, and there were many Australians, such as Sir Mark Oliphant, and the state governors, state premiers like Balti, Askin, and Court, and someone born in New Zealand as well, Bioki Peterson, who saw the crown as important to not not necessarily because they were ardent monarchists, they did have many traditional inclinations, but especially to keep Canberra at bay, and this was incredibly important there, and this is how the Crown became involved. And interestingly, when, uh, when Edward Heath brought up with um, Whitlam about how he should get rid of the Colonial Laws Validity Act, which, had, which was inaugurated in 1865, uh, Whitlam said he did not want it uh, repealed because it would increase the powers of the state. Edward Heath, not known for his humour, uh, made a private note to the Foreign Office saying, I refrain from commenting on this desire to retain legislation, which was not only colonial aspect, but colonial in title. The other part which was very interesting uh, in, in terms of these, the, this assertion of Whitlam's idea to modernize, and if you like, Australianize the Australian constitution as well, and the Australian monarchy, was, um, was his ability to do this without really getting the support of the states. And when this was happening, 
the states use their offices, which they still retain to this day, in London to try and get the British to, uh, to the delaying that Anne was talking about, to do this, to delay Whitlam's ideas of changing things. So people like Sir Murray, Murray Porter from Victoria uh, made huge uh, demands on British ministers and went constantly to the uh, Foreign Office and tried to meet influential backbenchers, especially in the Conservative Party, to try and make it as, life as difficult as possible for these reforms to go through. And this was supported by also some even uh, Labour administrations. Tasmania was in particular uh, keen on this, as was um, South Australia. Whitlam, interestingly, despite, as uh, James is mentioning, about having to get rid of these relics and wanted to change the, uh, the axis of the relationship, nonetheless wanted unilateral action from the British government to get what he wants. This was how the British viewed it, to get his power over the states. But the British were worried that any such action would, quote, endanger the Crown and lay the charge that Britain helped Whitlam, Mr. Whitlam, to circumvent the Constitution, strengthen Canberra, weaken the states, and bring the Crown into political controversy. So this was, this was a very real factor at that time. And Queen's in that time, as some of you may, may remember, wanted to actually name the Queen, specifically Queen of Queensland. Uh, which uh, Whitlam did his best and eventually succeeded in getting that not uh, to the Privy Council to uh, decide upon. The British High Commission reported from Canberra days after the dismissal that, quote, there has been a good deal of ill-informed discussion in the press and elsewhere about the position of the United Kingdom and U UK ministers in relation to the issue. This has arisen in part because of a failure to distinguish between the position of Her Majesty as Queen of the United Kingdom and the Queen and Her Majesty as Queen of, of Australia. British diplomats in Australia were in fact given specific instructions on the line to take. Quote, you should refuse to be drawn into any discussion of the present constitutional dispute and say that this was solely a matter for Australia. Of course, this was not strictly true. Since, as I mentioned, Britain did have some key responsibilities and they were doing their best to prevent uh, Britain being involved, but also the Queen being involved. <clears throat> but apart from the constitutional and uh, legal involvement, the Queen became politically involved and popularly through statements such as Whitlam stating, as, as, was, as is well remembered, he was sure that the Queen would never have done, done it in the way Sir John Kerr had done. Or Kerr pleading that he had not informed the Queen of his decision beforehand so as to protect her from embarrassment, and especially as Anne was discussing the ominous phone call that was meant to happen or did not happen. British officials in, White, in Whitehall and Canberra kept a close eye on Australian politics, perhaps more so due to this historic and constitutional connection. Whitlam was described even before November 11th as, quote, a mercurial and irascible man of whom they were concerned about how cavalier he can be. While Malcolm Fraser's appearances, quote, were scarcely calculated to generate affection, and whose, <laughs> and whose qualities clearly did not include warmth, and who had a naked ambition for power, while interestingly both were described as obdurate. <laughs> <clears throat> 
Interestingly, of course, Whitlam and Fraser took a very different position on the powers of the Crown and as exercised by the Governor-General. As, as, as the High Commission recorded, Whitlam has insisted that the Governor-General cannot act except on advice from his Prime Minister, while Mr Fraser believes that it would be eventually be the duty of the Governor-General to intervene in order to resolve the political impasse. So the Australian Washminster system, as David Butler called it, with its combination of American and Westminster uh, aspects, caused some of this difficulty for the, for the British to understand quite how uh, this crisis would play out with the uh, potential actions uh, of the Senate. <clears throat> but this, became, this be did become important because with the... With the, the part of the Australian Constitution dealing or not dealing with casual vacancies. This meant that places like uh, Queensland where a vacancy had occurred and the convention where uh, a senator should be replaced by someone from their own party was overturned. And in this, as, as in this case, the Britain was extremely furious what had happened here and decided to, in fact, uh, step into the fray, whereas before they'd generally gone with uh, generally speaking, what the premiers and state governors had wanted. In this case, they did not want to do what uh, Bioki Peterson wanted. And the governor of Queensland at that time, Sir Colin Hanna, had famously described and broke convention by describing the Whitlam government as a fumbling ineptitude. Uh, and they said Whitlam and the palace were extremely worried that he might be called upon to issue the writs for a half-Senate election which, uh, and, and would, would not actually do this. <clears throat> As the governor was appointed by the Queen of the United Kingdom and not the Queen of Australia, there was concern that the Queensland Premier, Bjorki Peterson, of course was rabidly anti-Whitlam, would not recommend to Hannah election, the election in Queensland. Whitehall feared that the Whitlam would ask the Governor-General to ask the Queen in turn to intervene and instruct the state governors to issue state uh, half-Senate election writs, something the Commonwealth of Australia did not have the power to do. And though they said this was an Australian matter uh, and that Her Majesty's United Kingdom ministers should not be involved in any way, they knew that if this happened, ultimately the British Foreign Secretary would be responsible for the actions uh, that happened. Interestingly, when this, so when uh, Bioki Peterson uh, tried to get uh, Hannah's term extended, Jim Callaghan, who was then uh, the British Foreign Secretary, wrote to, uh, wrote to the governor in, in, in very stark and blatant language that you normally don't see in these sorts of uh, correspondence, said that Col uh, Hannah's actions, quote, were not in keeping with the convention of regal and vice-regal impartiality, which Her Majesty and her representatives traditionally observe. In these circumstances, I have not submitted that your term of office be extended. And other weird and wonderful uh, things happened, and wonderfully for scholars like me in Australia, uh, fact is often more fascinating than fiction. Uh, and turning to Western Australia, where there was, just before Kerr becomes Governor-General, uh, Sir Paul Hazlick, of course, from Western Australia, was visiting the governor, Sir Douglas Kendrew. So unlike uh, most of the other settler realms, like Australia, uh, Canada and New Zealand, the states in Australia still had Britons, of course, as their governors right into the 70s. And Sir Douglas Kendrew was a RAF 
uh, officer there and an Englishman, and he was in uh, cahoots with uh, Charles Court about trying to manipulate the uh, federal system to, bring a, to get all the non-Labour states to try and bring a standstill across the Federation of Australia, which would, in their view, ultimately bring down the Whitlam uh, administration. And he wanted Haslick, of course, was a, a senior uh, liberal politician, to help him in this, uh, but, the, uh, but thankfully uh, Haslick gave him no fuel to, this, to make that fire. Uh, <clears throat> but coming back to uh, what something that James was mentioning, that in many ways uh, Whitlam, it's easy to see him, especially after 1975, as a key person in the Republican debate and a key Republican, but in many ways, at least viewed from the official documents and some uh, private papers, he comes in fact as much more of a progressive monarchist in the sense of trying to Australianise uh, the monarchy uh, and, and in, in many ways increase the powers of uh, the Crown or at least uh, of the Governor-General in Australia. And interestingly, he keeps referring in these official documents to the Governor-General being the Viceroy, which is, you know, obviously has a strong connotation in imperial history as one of uh, massive amounts of power. And he, because he wanted all the powers of the state governors and all the crucial powers of the Queen to actually be, uh, in many ways, been trans translated to the Governor-General of Australia, something, uh, admittedly, that uh, people like Deakin had wanted to do many years earlier. But the British were reluctant to do this, mainly because, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that. Uh, Whitlam had not tried to get the support of the states and they were using this as a, as a tool to in some ways resist uh, Whitlam's measures because they were um, worried that they did not have the support of the states and they would be in turn acting uh, unconstitutionally. <clears throat> so interestingly, turning to the dismissal itself about, and the, the as uh, Anne was mentioning the race to the palace, uh, race to the telephone. The, the Sir Maurice James, who was the High Commissioner at that time in, uh, in, in Canberra, was in, in, described himself as an omnipresent agony, agony aunt uh, <laughs> to the main political uh, party, the main political figures uh, in Australia at the time, and people like Whitlam, uh, Fraser, but also other uh, key Australian political figures, especially Kerr, would go and visit him in many ways, give, tell him what they thought uh, was going on. And interestingly, one of the most curious uh, conversations he had was where um, uh, Whitlam told him, said that though he believed republicanism would uh, would rise in Australia, he believed, quote, our admiration for the best things in Britain never faltered. I can only wish that our democratic institutions were as strongly equipped to deal with them as they are in Britain. As you know, this would never have happened in Britain and the Queen would never have done it. And then, almost the next day, Sir Morris met Sir John Kerr, who said, quote, that he thought it no bad thing that the public in Australia and perhaps also those in other monarchical Commonwealth countries, not excluding Britain, should have been reminded that the Crown does indeed possess these key reserve powers. 
Maybe such a reminder need only be given every 25 or 50 years, but it was salutary that the Crown's functions were not merely titular and or ceremonial, and indeed that the average Australian has grown tired of the frenzied haste of Mr Whitlam and has voted for a return to the conservative traditions of Australia. And finally, Sir Maurice James, in some ways getting to the crux of the matter to conclude, told the Foreign Secretary that the real villain, if there is a villain at all, has been the inherent contradictions of the Australian Constitution. Was it really a practical possibility to combine an upper house on the American model, having broadly the same powers as those of the lower house, with a Westminster style of relationship between the executive and the legislative branches, in which by convention, the possession of a majority in the lower house confers the right to form the government and to govern as long as the majority lasts? It is this attempt to reconcile the irreconcilable which the Australian constitution enshrines. In a month's time, when the voters go to the polls, it may well be that they will have their jobs and prices at the front of their minds rather than the rights and wrongs of the exercise of the reserved powers of the Governor-General of Australia. Hashan, I would love to interrogate you more on this um, because that was a terrific presentation, but we have about 20 minutes and I'd like to open it up now to the audience for any questions. There's a roving mic. Oh, yeah, sure. And we'll go with this uh, lady over here first. There's a roving mic, just wait, there's a roving microphone for you. Oh, not like mics, but thank you. <laughs> just following on what James just passed over, we were talking about the CIA just very briefly mm. and no proven whatever. Um, what do you believe, if you believe, is the link between the other 9-11 in Chile in September the 11th, 1974, 1973 actually, and... Um, and the situation here at the time, I mean, you did address it in some way. Mm. And there seemed to be some link with personnel, CIA personnel between the two places within that two year period. And I just wondered whether you know anything further about that and whether you have a comment, if you wouldn't mind. I Thank don't you. know the personnel, but I, I do know it's pretty much established now that the CIA had a major hand in the downfall of the Allende government. That's without question, as a scholar at the University of London Tonya Hamer, I think her name is, who's done the definitive work on this. I know that Whitlam was also furious that there were uh, ACES, uh, which is our foreign intelligence uh, agency, that there were ACES agents uh, still in Chile at the time and who were purportedly uh, assisting the Americans in some of these activities. Uh, this involved a huge uh, fight between Whitlam and the head of that, of that agency. So, um, yeah... That, I mean, there was, a, there was a long-standing suspicion in Washington at the higher circles about what a Labor government would mean in Australia, keeping in mind, of course, that they've been used to 23 years of conservative rule. And uh, they're worried about the left wing of the Labor Party. As I said, they're particularly worried about Cairns uh, and others getting control of the party at Labor Party conferences and moving motions that will eject those US facilities from Australian soil. So, I mean, the other point I would mention is that in March of 1975, when Marshall Green, the ambassador, US ambassador to Australia, is back in Washington having consultations with uh, Schlesinger, the, Minister for the Secretary for Defence, uh, they talk about the church committee that's been taking place 
the inquiry that's been taking place in the US Congress about the overseas activities of US intelligence agencies and their role in bringing down governments and decapitating foreign leaders. And um, there is an intriguing comment in the record of conversation where Green, Marshall Green says, if investigations here get linked to Australia, it may shorten our stay. And uh, I mean, as I've documented in the book, so alarmed were the Americans about the prospect of what a Cairns deputy prime ministership and possibly they thought, they, they thought well, what happens if Whitlam goes under a bus? Mm. Uh, Cairns will become prime minister and what then? Um, so they, they went through scenarios and said, well, what we're going to do is look at options for ending intelligence sharing with Australia. We're going to look at options for moving those intelligence facilities out of Pine Gap, Narunga and North West Cape. And we're going to stop military exercises with Australia. Now, had that happened, in the end, the Americans pulled back from that brink. But had that happened, then the US-Australia alliance would have been left as very little else than a brittle chrysalis. OK, we have uh, a question Thank here, you. and then from this gentleman here, and then over there. So, uh, so. I've just actually got a couple of comments. Uh, I was there in Canberra <laughs> uh, with immaculate timing. Uh, a lot of people have forgotten now. It's lost in history. Uh, Whitlam had one of the first think tanks in Australia called the Priorities Review Staff, which was non-political. And I arrived there on the 6th of November, 1975. <laughs> as a staff was, member. As a staff member. So five days later, I sort of lost my job. But uh, we were non-political and I ended up in the Prime Minister's Department under Fraser. Uh, and then an, another historic event, you could say it was part of Whitlam's revenge, was uh, the first portrait of Sir John Kerr was uh, actually rejected. Uh, which had never been done before, and I was the person that had to uh, have some yes Prime Minister moments <laughs> of doing it. <laughs> well, just, thank you very much. Just the last other question, the point was uh, your comment about ACES and so on uh, in Chile. I then ended up in South America setting up our refugee program, and uh, when uh, in Buenos Aires, when uh, Britain had to leave because of the Falklands War, uh, Australia actually sent in an ACES operative to take over from MI6. So we had a very close secret relationship still going well after that. Mm. Thank, you. Thank you very much. Uh, gentleman here at the front, and then uh, back to this gentleman here. Yeah. Paul Semidas, some very good uh, talks there. I've learned so much. My question is to Anne. Um, does the Governor-General only receive his advice from his f First Minister? Are there any circumstances in which he can rely upon advice from other, uh, from the Chief Justice, for example, or even from the, the British government, and dare I say, the Sovereign? Are there any examples of that? And where do you think we stand now in 2015 on those issues? Yep. Um, I have written about this, actually, quite um, extensively recently. Uh, it depends very much on the meaning of the term advice. There are two sorts of advice, and Buckingham Palace describes these as advice with a capital A and advice with a small a. Advice with a capital A is constitutional 
advice. So that's the advice from your responsible ministers. And they do have to be responsible ministers. That doesn't mean, oh dear, I'm very responsible, but it means I'm responsible to the parliament, uh, meaning that my government has the confidence of the lower house. Um, so if you've got responsible ministers, uh, then the governor general or the queen has to take the advice of those responsible ministers in relation to performing their activities, in relation to that relevant country. Um, unless they're exercising a reserve power. So that's the whole point of reserve powers, is that they're the ones that the Governor-General or the Queen can exercise without advice. Okay. Now, the critical thing about that form of constitutional advice is that it shifts responsibility. So when a Governor-General acts upon the advice of a Prime Minister, um, it shifts responsibility for that advice to the Prime Minister, and the Prime Minister then has to um, be responsible to the parliament for the advice. So that's how the chain goes. So Whitlam, when he said that the Governor-General can only take advice from me, was right when he was talking about constitutional or formal advice. But there's a second kind of advice, and that's advice with a small a. And that's generally advice that you might seek when you want to know about you know, what is the extent of your powers, what are the legal issues involved, what are the precedents involved, and all those sorts of things. Because if you're the Governor-General or the Queen, and you have the responsibility of exercising a reserve power without formal advice, you're going to need to be aware of what the scope is of your powers, what are the precedents, what are the conventions. Now, how do you find that out? You can read stuff about it in books, but equally, there's nothing wrong about ringing up the person who wrote the book and talking to them. Uh, so they can receive informal advice from other people, but it's not like constitutional advice because it doesn't shift responsibility. You can receive informal advice that might help inform you in making your own decision, but you're not shifting responsibility to the person who advised you. You are purely responsible for that decision yourself, um, but you can receive that advice from um, academics, and I have to say I've given that sort of advice myself because of my expertise in this area. So from academics, um, you know, former judges, lawyers, all those sorts of people, political scientists, um, that's utterly appropriate. When it comes to getting advice from active judges, however, it becomes more controversial. Yeah, just very quickly, because there's another couple of questions, sure. but okay. there's, a very, there's a very interesting observation made in a review of uh, a couple of the most recent books. Paul Roden, who's an academic at the ANU, uh, pointed out that um, Anthony Mason, of course, which, and this is new information, I don't think many people knew that Anthony Mason, who later became uh, Chief Justice under the Hawke government, gave advice to, uh, uh, to Kerr, but he says here that um, uh, we had the bizarre... Uh, uh, scenario of Anthony Mason organising the ANU law school members to tutor John Kerr on aspects of vice-regal power. I thought John Kerr had been the Chief Justice of New South Wales. Mm. Yeah, well, the, the thing <laughs> is... Not a very good one in, if he wasn't aware of those Well, powers. if you're a judge, you don't actually get much experience in things like the reserve powers. It's a pretty, pretty small number of people who actually know about this. Uh, and that goes for Garfield Barwick as well. He probably didn't know too much about it either. Um, but to be very short on this, let me just say that up until 1975, in almost every constitutional crisis, a judge has advised. Okay? 
after 1975, in almost every constitutional crisis, no judges have advised. Um, the tipping point was 75 because of the controversial nature of Barwick's um, advice. But otherwise, up until then, it actually really was standard practice to get advice from judges. Gentleman here with the microphone. Uh, thank you, Professor. Um, also for yourself, just um, putting aside conventions, just in straight um, uh, uh, constitution and legislation, is it possible for the Senate to block supply and for all this to happen again? And if so, um, what is a, what are some of the, just briefly, some of the legislative techniques to stop this, e.g. fixed-term parliaments? Thank you. Um, the answer is yes, it is possible to do it again. The only reason it hasn't happened is that people have realised that it would be very traumatic if they did. Um, how to change that and stop that happening, if you want to limit the powers of the Senate, you've really got to have a referendum to do it. Um, and no one's game to put up a referendum on that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, gentleman here, then a lady in the front and gentleman at the back there. So, yeah. Um, Jeff Howes, um, apart from being a graduate of this university, I was on the lawns at Parliament House that afternoon. Um, the, um, and I think I've been a revolutionary ever since. Um, I'm a very conservative person, but the, it, it was just unbelievable. Um, part of my question is to you about the smoking gun. Um, the gun was loaded and it hadn't been fired, mm. so there was no smoking gun, but it was still loaded. Well, Do you want to engage with that, James? Well, I mean, that's a very cryptic <laughs> comment. I mean, uh, um, one, one of the things, just very briefly, I will say is, yeah, there has been a lot of emphasis on some of the CIA daily intelligence reports that were um, documenting the constitutional crisis. And really, to be quite honest with you, these are nothing more than glorified editorials that you could... You, there's no new information in there. Um, and it has to be said that the CIA were quite sanguine about a Whitlam government. Um, the first report they wrote, even after Whitlam's ministers in December of 1972 had called the White House thugs, maniacs and mass murderers, was quite calm about it. I mean, and basically said, look, we can expect a change of tone and a change of style, but Whitlam, at heart, is a moderate. He doesn't want to end the alliance. He doesn't want to abrogate the ANZUS Treaty. Um, we can deal with him. Now, as I said, the concerns did mount once particular figures got closer to the position of political power in Australia. Um, but look, by nature, the CIA records, you know, in Washington, they're just not available. And to be honest, I'm not even sure whether this kind of material would have been put down in, in writing. So that's why I know it sounds very cautious and it might even sound like a bit of a cop-out, but as I say, there's no documented evidence that, that the CIA were tampering. The other question that needs to be asked is, did they really need to, given, given the scandal and the turmoil and the constitutional crisis in, a, in its own right that had enveloped the Whitlam government at this time? Did they really need to? I don't doubt that there was some kind of business going on. That's why I've made the claim in the book that, that there is some kind of activity that was either being uh, considered or that had been going on and was stopped. I don't doubt there was a bit of fiddling in Australian domestic politics. There's an intriguing meeting in 1977 at Mascot Airport 
where Warren Christopher is on his way to an ANZUS meeting in New Zealand and he brings a message from Jimmy Carter and Gough Whitlam and his staffer at the time, who was uh, Richard Butler, in a private room with Christopher. Christopher said, I'm bringing you a message from the President, we're not going to interfere in Australian domestic politics again. Now, there's no record of what actually was said at that meeting. We only have Whitlam's and Butler's uh, record of it. Apparently, Whitlam said nothing. I can't believe that Whitlam would say nothing. <laughs> uh, confronted with this type of, uh, you know, virtual admission or confession from a senior policymaker in the United States. But, but Goff was out of office by then. Goff was out yeah, of yeah, office, that's yeah. right. Yeah, uh, we have one question here and one final question from the gentleman behind you. Uh, we've heard a lot about uh, the Australian uh, relationship with the Queen. Dr. Harsham, do you think the Brits are preparing for King Charles and his relationship with us? I don't have secret information, but uh, <laughs> uh, well, I thought, it, I thought it, perhaps memories are quite short with, in terms of at least at, um, at the Lodge in Clarence House that on this very day, Charles is at, um, here for the Remembrance Day uh, uh, commemorations mm. at, at Canberra. But I, I have heard, at least in, in Britain, that, uh, that Charles is at least doing a lot of homework on the, his constitutional obligations uh, as so, when, when he becomes sovereign of wherever's left by then. Um, and so he is particularly interested on the, and as you, as was affected here, we've got a lot of debate, I believe, between, especially with Queensland and the federal government about the act of succession, about so changing that because that's a, uh, a right which is enshrined in the statute of Westminster that all the uh, the realms are have the ability need to pass the legislation individually uh, about that and Queensland was against that but anyway when, regarding the actual succession uh, Charles was very interested in seeing what was apparently what was going on getting quite a lot of briefing from uh, some constitutional experts in the UK about not just the British side, but also uh, states as big as Australia, but also the, especially most of the realms these days, of course, are places that are under a million uh, people, so in the Pacific and in the uh, Caribbean. So there's, they have quite complex, despite their size, they have very complex political systems and potential obligations. Some of the ones that Anne mentioned in her paper could easily be repeated uh, at any time, and as we've seen, Papua New Guinea and, and mentioned uh, Tuvalu, uh, these, uh, these could happen any time. Mm. I, I haven't forgotten you, sir. Uh, we could probably just squeeze in another three or four minutes. James, you had a point there. Yeah, very quickly, just, just on that point. I, I often go back to an essay that was written in 1963 by Geoffrey Dutton, one of the first real sustained intellectual pushes for an Australian Republic. And he said in that article, that the syrup of a royal visit oozes over any cracks in the Anglo-Australian <laughs> relationship. And I think that tends to be the case when the younger royals are here. I saw polling that was done for the Australian Republican movement a couple of years ago, and it said that the highest support for the monarchy is in the age group from 18 years to 35, because they say the monarchy has a sense of tradition and grandeur that we don't have. Mm. And I'm glad you're all sitting down, because this will horrify you, there is a consistent opinion amongst that age group as well 
that if Australia becomes a republic, Britain will not come to Australia's defence in the event of an attack on the country. <laughs> so that's a kind of a pre-1942. But there is, and there was, was there not though about 20 years ago, uh, an effort to get Charles to become the Governor-General of Australia. It was. Yep. Because, uh, you know, for whatever one may think of him, he does have a very lively mind and he's very mm. engaged and he was bored with whatever he was mm. trying to make himself, you know, fill mm. his time. And they thought, well, here's a real job for you. Well, yes, there was, um, and that sort of petered out. But actually, at a later stage, um, the, believe it or not, a Labor Premier in Victoria actually wanted him and Diana to come as um, Governor of Victoria, and Charles rejected that out of hand. Because this was John Kane. Yes. Yeah. Um, Charles rejected that out of hand because he didn't want to be in a subordinate position to the Governor-General. So, um, <laughs> okay. not Just, so keen on Melbourne. Okay, we have uh, time for one question there and one final question at the back, sir. Firstly, just a follow-on to about Charles. I don't think we would want someone like uh, who wanted to be uh, a tampon inside uh, his mistress's oh, okay. uh, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. right. Yep, yep, as a yep. governor general. But anyway, yep. my comment is uh, he said a bit more than on that. On the day though, of the, uh, uh, the dismissal, more interesting than that. Within an office of about 200 people that I worked in, there was a lot of outrage and anger, and I actually thought there would be civil unrest. And I was just really surprised that nothing happened apart from the official Labor Party rallies, which were huge. The other demonstrations were very small, consisting of about maybe 100 people at most. I'm just wondering why that, in this country, why it happened. Why there's no civil unrest or and no one really got that angry, apart from vocally. Was it due to the media or the fact that we're just all... Yep. No, no, that's a good point. It's a good comment, but we will take it as a comment. We'll take the last question from the gentleman at the back there. Thank you. The, the real crux of the crisis of 75, um, paradoxically, um, we think of a healthy uh, democracy, a sine qua non, if you like, of a, a truly healthy democracy being um, a, a constituent um, sense of uh, ongoing... Uh, lively oppositionality. Um, but the paradox in this case is that the reformist Social Democratic Party, the ALP, um, were relegated to um, being an opposition for more than three decades instead of two decades via this constitutional manoeuvre. Um, which was enacted by a, um, a monarchical um, bureaucratic uh, functionary uh, in the form of um, John Kerr, um, basically superimposing um, another almost decade of conservative uh, rule over the working class. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I'll just add something very quickly to that. I know there's often a view taken that the only dismissals of governments are Labor governments and they're oppressed by the upper classes and the governors general. And it, it's, it's rubbish. It's people not knowing their history. So you can find, for example, conservative, gov conservative premiers in Victoria who were effectively dismissed. They just had their resignation required by the governor. Um, and they were dismissed um, because they couldn't get supply. And the reason they couldn't get supply was it was being blocked by Labor. Um, so the reality is it's happened on both sides of the fence. The only difference is that the conservative premiers who got sacked 
didn't maintain the rage, went quietly, um, and then just got on with the business. Um, there's really no difference between what happened in like 1955 in Victoria um, uh, and uh, what happened in 1975 at the Commonwealth level. Same issue, upper house blocking supply, governor dismissing, governor general dismissing the, the premier and all the rest of it. Uh, it's just that people don't remember it. But they don't um, live the on difference. in legend. That's the point. Yeah, well, it's, and, it's not legend. And also, just one final point. I mean, I think, you know, as well as talking about the deception on the part of Kerr, don't forget the political violence uh, perpetrated by Malcolm Fraser in pushing the system to its, to its real breaking point at this time. And whilst the Conservatives never accepted the legitimacy of that Labor government being elected in 72, remember Snedden said in 74, we weren't actually defeated? We just um, didn't get enough votes. Just didn't get enough <laughs> votes. And then, and, then, and then Fraser, in many ways, you could make a, a valid case. I agree with everything Anne just said. You could make a valid case that Fraser himself was crippled in terms of his legitimacy by the way he came to power. And that much of his post-prime ministerial career, for all the great things that he did, was a search for a kind of absolution. Right? But... but the, don't forget the ruthlessness of Malcolm Fraser in this and the lust for power. I don't think that should be forgotten about the Fraser who we saw undergo a tremendous metamorphosis on so many questions. Not on race. He was always consistent on race. But on some of these other questions, an incredible transformation took place. Anyway, we'll leave it there. We'll leave it there. I think we should... I, I think one thing it's interesting to reflect upon, I'm involved in the Whitlam Institute at the University of Western Sydney, and the last, the last Whitlam lecture given before Goff died, was delivered with Goff's blessing by Malcolm Fraser, which I thought was rather poetic. Please thank very much Hassan, uh, James and Anne.